Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. The big key for smallmouth, you want an upstream attitude, so you want that fly trying to face an upstream the whole time, and then you want pauses. When that fly pauses, I want it to have action. I don't want my fly moving forward towards me, but I still want it to have action. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Ozark Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Veet, and hopefully wherever you're at, it's warm, it's sunny, and you are on your way to your favorite local fishing hole because we are coming at you hot off the press and hot off the river with a smallmouth bass episode. Plunk and I got to hang out and hit the water last week with someone who you've heard from before when we were talking walleye earlier this year, and that is Clayton Eliason of Red's Guide Service. If you haven't heard that episode, make sure you go back and listen because it is one of our best and Clayton definitely knows his stuff when it comes to walleye. But as it turns out, he's also one hell of a smallmouth guide. So we hit the Kings last week with a couple of people, actually. Quick shout out to Connor Cockrell of Wolf and Pine and Joe Ram of Flywheel Adventures. We got out there and decided, you know, we want to learn from Clayton firsthand and get an episode. So we sat down and we talked how to catch these smallmouth in the Ozarks. And Clayton really gets right to the good stuff. I mean, he talks rod and line weight. He talks specific flies you want to use and, and how to fish them, when to fish them. Hope you all enjoy it and we'll see you on the water. Where are we at? On a riverbank. Heck yeah, we it's are. It's a first for us. It is. Well... I did. I got to do one, Kyle. This isn't the first one right, on the river. It's a first for me. It's a first for you. So welcome to the party. Thanks, man. Uh, but we've got a special guest with us today. We've got Clayton Elison of Red's Guide Service with us. And uh, he's invited us out to a stretch of water that he loves. And um, he fishes very frequently. And uh, he's showing us the ropes out here. So Clayton, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate it. We've been on the water for, what do you think? About an hour, uh, about two hours? Hour and a half, hours? almost two. Yeah. Yep. And we've kind of just really we're starting to get into it, but we've already hooked on a pretty good fish. Yep, Kyle, you were you want to talk through what you saw back there? Yeah, so we were stre- fishing over the first stretch of good fishable water out here somewhere on the no named spot on the Kings River, mm. and and uh, it is gorgeous. And it's here. beautiful. The Kings, if you've ever been, you know. We we finally found some good structure. Clayton is talking me through the cast as we're going. <laughs> You know, we've been fishing over, like, mud at this point, and he's like, man, anytime you just slow twitch that thing, you're going to have a small mouth come up and crush it. And as he says that, <laughs> like, you couldn't time it any better. Yeah, that was we pretty good. 15 and a, half, and a half inch small mouth come up and just crush the fly. And so, he was gorgeous, man. He, he was. had so the we, markings and everything on him. Yep. So we, yeah, hook set, got him into the boat as a, a first, uh, first out of the river rat raft for me. Yeah. On the fly rod. That's fishing true. six weight. Yeah. Five weight. Five, you were oh, on five. On five weight. Yeah, that's now, five. Now I feel real accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, it's a nice fish. It was a nice fish. We're having fish. fun. Yeah. No, we're having a good time. We basically, what we want to do is we're going to break down, Clayton's going to break down how you catch smallmouth in the Ozarks. We're specifically 
on the Kings today, but yep. Clayton, you were talking. This kind of broadly applies pretty much anywhere within the Ozarks. Would you say say so? Yeah, so I'm going to say anywhere within like 150, 200 miles of northwest Arkansas. Okay. Um, really, uh, I think the determining factor is the water clarity. Okay. Um, so, you know, you get over into the Ozarks of Oklahoma, which technically counts, but, you know, I mean, it's Oklahoma. So. <laughs> no, they got some really good water over there. Yeah, they but do. But it, it does tend to be a little bit more darker water um not near the visibility um so what i'm saying won't necessarily apply in that darker muddier water that they've got over there uh but i would say even as far north as like some of the st louis area yeah um there's a lot of really good clear water up there so really you know i mean the teams you guys will see here this next hole that we're getting ready to drop into about 12 foot deep and we'll see the bottom in in great detail at 12 uh, feet. At 12 feet, yeah. Golly. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, you can tell even I'm looking here. Sitting down, I can almost see out to half, probably three-quarters of the way across the river, the river bottom. Yeah. Yeah. It, it you is can at tell where the color changes and what, you know, what sand, what's mud, what's rock, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. So it's, I mean, just gorgeous. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. So where do we start, Clayton? I mean, we can we can go a lot of different ways. We um, can, and and I know that smallmouth is a is a passion for you. So maybe we yep. just start with kind of how you got into smallmouthing. Because last time we had you on, we were talking walleye. Yep. And specifically on traditional tackle. Yes. I know you do fly fishing, um, and you you kind of hop back and forth between traditional tackle and fly. Yep. Um, but what got you into fishing for smallmouth on the fly, and why is it something that you're so passionate about? So. Got into it because I could ride my bike to Little Shooter Creek in Bella Vista mm. growing up. Yep. So I was a homeschool kid, um, so I got out of school pretty early. You turned out okay. I did turn out okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly normal. <laughs> You're talking to two other kids who are homeschooled at some point in their life, too. We so. also homeschooled at some point. We're all, right, we're all yeah. in good company. Okay. Yeah. Um, so maybe we're all weird, but we just don't know. Don't know it. Yeah, yeah, we're all weird, go. but as long as we keep telling each other we turned out okay, <laughs> we're good. It works out. Um. So I could ride my bike about four and a half miles down to the creek. Okay. And so when I was 13, 14, uh, I started riding my bike down there. And uh, I was spin fishing at the time. And I got to the point where, you know, that 10, 15 miles of Sugar Creek that's in Arkansas, uh, all the way through Bella Vista, man, I had that sucker dialed. Yeah. But I'm a 14-year-old kid with nothing better to do. Like, yeah. I'm riding my bike down there every day. Yeah, right? all summer long. Yeah, well, and I mean, dude, I was fishing all year. I get, uh, Yeah, that's true. You're homeschooled. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, like, uh, I'll never I, – I rode my bike. It snowed like three inches one day. And I was like, I bet if I go down there, I'll catch a big one. So, I, I rode my bike through the snow. <laughs> I just rode in the tire tractor all the way down to the creek. Yeah. And I did catch some big ones. Um, so grew up doing that. You're the only person I've ever heard of when it snows thinks smallmouth. <laughs> you know what? Smallmouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. Heard anyone yeah. say that before. <laughs> Never in my life. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that, that was one of the mentalities of, uh, big bait, big fish. Okay. Uh, and you get those massive cold fronts like that. And that's, that really is the time where if you can at all stand to be in the cold, my God, you'll catch big fish doing it. Um, so anyways, I, I grew up doing that and had that place so dialed that I was kind of starting to look for the next challenge, right? Um, and I, I kind of started to learn to fly fish a little bit and I thought, man, this would be, this would be pretty cool to fly fish for smallmouth, like yeah. something different. Um, 
So I spent probably three years really learning. There's a when you start fly fishing for smallmouth, I think anybody can do it. It's it's a very achievable thing, even on your own. Uh, and I think now with Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and all that, it's there's a lot less of a learning curve. Uh, but I was on, you know, we still had dial-up internet whenever I was yeah. starting my fly fishing. You turn like, it on and it makes all those yeah. horrid noises. Yep. So I was not YouTubing how to do this. So the, the learning curve was a little bit longer for me. Uh, so it took me about three years to go from having, you know, four or five smallmouth in a day to figuring out, oh, wait, I can go catch just as many smallmouth on a fly rod as I can on a spinning rod. Mm, yeah. Uh, and especially on the Kings River, man, it's it sets up so phenomenally well for fly fishing. I've had multiple days on the Kings with over 100 smallmouth. Wow. Uh, now, to preface that, we're talking fish. Some of those smallmouth are eight inches. Like, it's, these aren't all big ones, Yeah, right? they're just hungry little fish. Yeah, exactly. Um so I got into it that way, um, just looking for the next challenge. And uh, then I kind of took a break on the small mouth because I got to drive. And so, of course, when you start driving, you're like, well, the water that I have dialed in is boring now because mm. I could <laughs> spend a lot of money and go drive halfway across the county to somewhere else that yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I started fishing the teens when I was 16 and uh, started out spin fishing, just wanting to figure out how to do it. Um and then got into fly fishing on the teens when I was 17. Okay. And uh, been after it ever since. Yeah. It, it is kind of tough. I think we've probably talked about this before, but just that that jump from, I feel like a lot of people who fly fish probably started at some degree spin fishing. Yeah. But then there's like that weird period of time where you're going with both. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with my spin rod and my fly rod. I'll try the fly rod, but if I don't catch anything, I'm switching. And yep that jump to where you know that you can be just as proficient on a fly rod to a spin rod is a really good place to get to, but it takes time. It does. And I would say, uh, one of the things that I challenge people is whether you've hired a guide or not, um, leave your spinning rods at home. Get to that point where you, you know that you know, okay, I can do this. Right. It may be a slower day than if I brought my spinning rod. But I'm going to tell you right now, even however I'm 26, however long I've been doing this, there are plenty of days where if I have both options in the boat and I'm tearing them up on a spinning rod, I'm not going to put it down. Yeah. There's no way. There's not. Like, (laughs) I know I can catch 100 fish on a spinning rod or I can pick up a fly rod and catch less than that. Right. So there's, there's a certain point, and I do it every year. Early in the year like this, somewhere in, in typically May, uh, early May, I will do a float with just fly rods because I have to reinstill my confidence level because I've gone all fall and winter without touching a fly rod. Yeah. And I can still do it, but uh, y- you've got to have that first really good day of the season and go, man, we just, you know, we just went and hit 50 smallmouth on a fly rod. Right. Now you've got the confidence all summer to leave that spinning rod at home and go out and do it. Yeah, you don't feel like you're going to waste the day. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yep. I love it. Let, let's talk some fly rod-specific tactics then when it comes to smallmouth fishing. Okay. Thinking everything from rod rate, rod weight, line weight, uh, sinking, floating, 
fast, yeah, fast yeah. sync, you know. Sure. Give yeah, us where, the run where do you start? So that's there's a lot of variables in that question. Um, so it's going to take me a minute to break it down. Okay. Help me stay on track here so yeah, I don't chase yeah. rabbit trails. We will, gu- we will guide you. Yeah, please. Um, so I'm going to recommend a 9-foot 5 weight on the rod, but it needs to be a fast action. Um, the one that you've been fishing all day has been the LK Legacy from TFO. Um, that's the revamped version of the BVK. Um, so that type of rod. And why not an 8-weight? Because I think most people think bass and they think 8-weight every time. Yeah, so great question. Uh, main reason, because it's too much rod. Uh, you don't, there are very few smallmouth in the Ozarks that you are going to hook and go, wow, I wish I had an 8-weight. Mm. There's a few. Yeah. There are there are a few. There will be days if you do this as, as much as I do or as much as you guys do, there's going to be that day where you hook a fish and you're like, crap, I wish I had an 8 right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but a five or a six weight, it's a lot less work on your shoulder. Um, so you're not going to get as fatigued. Mm-hmm. And I see the average, the average angler makes it about three hours before their cast just, I mean, just dump off. They're just tired. They're tired. Um, and so an eight weight, you get an hour and a half. And uh, so if I can downsize to a five, I'll overline it with a six weight. And then, uh, I, so one thing you have to understand about the fly fishing industry to kind of dive into this, there's no standard for what weight a rod is. Okay. So if I design the rod and I say it's a 15 weight, by God, it's a 15 weight. Mm. If you design that exact same rod and you go, no, this is a one weight, by God, it's a one weight. Who knew? Really? So there's yeah. no standardization? There's no standardization at all. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Now, that's to my knowledge. I, I know as of like three huh. years ago, that was a fact. Okay. That uh, So it's a three-year-old statistic, but I don't, I've not heard of anything changing in that. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. I mean, I've never seen anything, not that I would know, or I'm not really involved in that in industry, but it, it does, yeah, I could see how that would be the case because if Orvis makes something and it's, this is our five-weight rod. What's to say that's the same stiffness, exactly. the same flex, the same play as... Yep. So that could be Temple Fork six-weight. Yeah, yeah exactly. three-weight. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, and, and, and that's a perfect example because you can pitch up, you know, you can lay out eight, nine-foot five-weights. They're all going to feel different. Gotcha. And so there's no standardization there. Now, on the line side, there is a standardization. Um... To my knowledge, Rio overweights by half weight. Scientific Angler does a full weight. So their five weight line is actually like technically speaking a six weight line. Mm. But I still overweight by one. Mm, okay. So my five weight that you're throwing today, it's running a six weight line. Got it. So Got it. the reason that I like to do that, when you get a little bit of wind, it allows you to punch through it. Mm-hmm. If your timing's not perfect... It allows you to compensate for that. But when you got a guy like you who can make a really nice cast, you're making 60, 70-foot shots on a five-weight. Like, that's that's something, right? Like, not many people can do that. So when you overline— You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys catch that? You'll, you'll make sure you rewind and hear that again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so when you overweight that rod by one full line size, it really helps with that. Um so the, I like that nine foot five weight. It'll save your shoulder, save your triceps, biceps, elbow, all that. Uh, you won't get as fatigued. 
I'll overweight by one. On a real, my recommendation, I personally really like the Temple Fork. Uh, main reason I like Temple Fork, and, and they don't know me from Adam. I'm not sponsored by them. Um, they're American. They're in, they're they're out of Dallas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and their warranty's awesome. And I'm gonna give them a little bit of a plug. Um, the way that they set their warranty up, you've got two different options. So you can actually just go buy parts for the rod. Mm-hmm. So say you break your rod tip in the tailgate of your truck. Yeah. For like twenty bucks, you can just buy a brand new rod tip. Well, because they're in Dallas, from the time I place the order to the time I've got, it's like two days. Yeah. So you don't have to buy a whole new rod. You just no. buy the section that you yep. break. And and you can any any of those sections you can get. They're more expensive as you go down the rod because sure. there's more to it. Yeah. Um, but the third section is always so you start at the tip. The third section is the one right above the butt section. It's the one that typically breaks for me because hmm. uh, it's where when somebody drops it, it's typically where it's getting popped on the raft mm. on the frame. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you get a weak spot in there, and it man within a half inch every time. So, like, on that LK Legacy that you're throwing, the third section's like 36 bucks. Hmm. So, for the average guy who wants to buy a quality rod, but then goes, well, man, if I break this thing, it's okay. $36 gets you. Yeah, you can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah like, right. um, so then the BVK reel is the reel that I throw. And I throw their their size 2, uh, which is going to be good for a 5 to 7 weight. Uh, and then what I do, I get one reel and multiple spools. So if you go look in my Yeti loadout box, I've got three extra reels, but then I have like eight extra spools. Mm, okay. So I don't, the reason for that, the BBK reel retails for like 200 bucks, I think, give or take 20 bucks. Um, but the extra spool is like 65 or 70 bucks. So somewhere in there, I don't remember the prices exactly. Um, but what that does is it allows me on a day like today to go, you know, if we hit a deep spot, um, I can take a new line and just put that extra spool on yeah, there. Yeah, pop it on there. Yeah, so it, it takes me 30 seconds to swap out lines. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot more cost-effective than having 15 extra reels right. yeah. in my loadout. Yeah. We do the same thing. I've got a I've got a Lampson uh, liquid. Mm-hmm. I think it's yep. yeah, remix. That, that kit. That and has it's a the... kit, yeah, and so it comes with a couple different spools. Okay. And it's great, just depending on the water you're fishing, It's you got to swap and yeah. and put something on. It's It's quick. You wouldn't want to do it. I, I wouldn't do it, like, mid-fishing unless we were taking a break, like a lunch break or something. Yep. Unless we were really about to move into, like, a deep section right. that was yep. going to last a while. But, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty quick. So the two times that I'll change out lines, well, the two major times that I think it's, it's worth from an educational standpoint talking about. One, all summer, uh, popping bugs are my favorite. If you can catch a small mouth on a popping bug or some kind of so top water. Yeah. I mean, it's the best thing ever, right? Uh, About to reload on this. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying not to acknowledge it, but it was too good. Now the people need to know. Yeah. Um, So if we get cloud cover, which we're getting some big clouds moving in, but if we get some, like, legit cloud cover, we're going to put floating lines on and throw some popping bugs. Love it. Cool. Uh, So that's one of those times that, and again, you got to know, like, early morning, I'll throw popping bugs. We got too much of a late start, uh, which was my fault. Um, and then if you get cloud cover, and then again late in the evening, we'll throw popping bugs. So uh, in the middle of the day like this, we go to streamers. So I want a streamer line. Now, you can get really, really, really lost in the sauce when it comes to lines. Yeah. So my recommendation to people 
it's kind of like the pickup argument of who makes the best pickup. Who gives a crap? They all make quality truck at this point. Like, it's not like one brand so much better than the other. Like, yeah, sure. They're all the same. Right. Uh, so, I personally like Rio. The reason that I like Rio, uh, they're very consistent. Uh, meaning, I can go to a fly shop in Wyoming and go grab the same exact Rio Predator fly line that I'm throwing today, and it's going to feel dang near like the exact same line. Like, there's very little difference. Hmm. Um, you go to, like, Cortland, and I love Cortland lines, but their tolerances are, are way different. So you pick up the, like, you take three of the exact same skew fly lines, they're going to throw different. Really? Yeah. So for me, it's it's an annoyance. They've got phenomenal fly lines, like no shade on them at all. They got a, they're a great company, uh, but their tolerances are just funky. Okay. Um, so I like Rio. Scientific Angler is great too, but there's not they're not as popular in the Ozarks, so I can't go into any fly shop and grab them. Sure. Um, so on the the fly lines, I think you need three fly lines to smallmouth fish. Okay. I think you need uh, the Rio Outbound Short floating, and that's going to cover my uh, dog days of summer when the water's really low, I'm going to throw a floating line, put a swivel three feet down on my leader so it helps it sink a little bit, and I'm going to throw a line, or excuse me, a, a fly that's got either some marabou or some trash, something that's going to absorb that water and help it sure. sink a little. Yeah. I've got something to ask on that. Yeah. And Kyle, when we were fishing earlier, you pointed this out. Um, you just mentioned a swivel. I personally haven't seen a whole lot of people do that, put a swivel on a leader on a fly rod. Yep. Um, maybe more people do than I know, but why do, why do you do that? So, um, specifically to answer your question, some of those big articulated flies, they'll start to, to swivel your line and you'll get some weak points in there because it's just been turned up all day. The other thing is when you're casting, you know, you get all that air resistance. And they'll spin. They'll spin. And so if you, especially like, I started doing it when I was mousing mm. over on Bull Shoals. Okay. And that mouse, the way it's tied it's it's just a big fan so just sit there and spin yeah i destroyed an eight weight fly line mousing because the whole line itself got so spun up that i had to trash it so i started putting a swivel on there hmm. um and now i found my leaders last a lot longer so i'll run depending on depending on the conditions i'll run three to four feet of plain old tapered leader and then right where that kind of where that taper really starts to take off I'll just put a swivel, okay. and it's a big one. Yeah, and you don't have to go get the expensive swivels. Like, I mean, I get the Eagle Claw, Black Nickel. I don't want a gold one because I don't want something that's really like gonna glint off the uh -huh. sun. So I get those Black Nickel, and I think they're twenty-five pound test swivels. So they're they're pretty big. Yeah, and they're probably a half inch long, maybe a little bit longer. Probably a little like, less. Pink, pro pinky tip. Yeah. I was looking at. Yeah. You Quarter look at your own hand, but it's like, I don't know, they're not huge. <laughs> no, Kyle, they're, but they're not tiny. For reference, Kyle's pinky is yes, bigger, my, bigger my, than mine. My pinky tip. It's about that long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll put that swivel on there, and then I'll run about 18 inches of, typically I'm going to run 8-pound fluorocarbon. Um, you know, you get over in Oklahoma where we talked that there's some of that dirtier water. I'll bump up to, say, 12-pound. Mm. They've also got some, stereotypically, there's some bitter smallmouth For over sure. there. Uh, but Kings River, uh, really any of your stereotypical Ozark, real clear water, I'm going to run 18 inches or so. And, and I don't measure it, right? This is just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a very ish. <laughs> <laughs> 
ish on exactly. the end of all of these measurements. Just okay? like the rod weights. Like, you're 18 yeah, exactly. inches yeah, somebody right. else is yep. 12. Um, so 18-ish. I do uh, Basically, what I, when I'm doing measurements, I'm either doing a full wingspan, right. a half a wingspan, or a quarter of a wingspan. Okay. That, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Um, and you'll learn how that rod's going to throw that streamer. So if your leader's too long, you're going to throw tailing loops all freaking day. Mm. Shorten that sucker up, you're going to be a lot more accurate. Uh, and no tailing loops. Yeah. So we're on about 18 inches of eight pound fluorocarbon. And I use the Cedar 101. It's like nine bucks for a spool of fluorocarbon. You don't need expensive fluorocarbon for this. Okay. Um, to my streamer. So that's on my floating or my intermediate lines. Mm-hmm. Um, the two intermediate lines that I think every serious fly fisherman needs Rio Predator. Uh, outbound short does have a sinking. I like the Predator a little bit more. It's designed okay. for streamer fishing. It's okay. that is its sole purpose. That's what, that's what it does. Yes. Um, so the the number one streamer line that I use all year is going to be the. Uh, it's a, called a Type Three, but if you look at the breakdown of it, it's uh, the first ten feet sinks ten inches per second. The second, like. Eight or ten feet sinks one inch per second, and then the rest of the line's floating. That is going to be the most. If I'm fishing water from three feet to ten or twelve ish, that's the line I'm going to use. Okay. So most of our Ozark streams in the summer, that's the line I'm going to use. Right. Yeah, I mean, especially once the big rains move through. Yeah, and yeah. you're not fishing the flood anyway. Like well, past, past, well, you might. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clayton might. I won't. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you, yeah, you, you probably don't need much more than that. Correct. And yeah. I learned that the hard way a couple weeks ago when we went. I was running full sinking line oh, that I yeah, purchased for pike, muskie, and smallmouth fishing in Minnesota. Oh, yeah. no. And so I was, you know, getting down to the weed yeah, beds. All, sure. And it was working there yep. right here. And I was like, man, I can't cast this dadgum yeah. thing. Yep. And the guy we were with is like, yeah, it's because your line is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You're all it's the way at the at bottom. your feet. Yeah. Yes. It's not going to work. Yep. Uh, so those are the two main that... Uh, Rio Outbound Short Floating, and then the Rio Predator Type 3. Okay. Um, and even on that Type 3, I will over line weight by one. Okay. Um, so my six weights, I'm running seven weight lines. Okay. Um, there's a lot of things to know about hunting turkeys in the Ozarks, but there's two things I know for sure. One, it's that turkeys have really good eyesight, so your camo matters. Canis makes an incredible turkey camo. It is comfortable, it is breathable, blends into the background like no other. It is the perfect camouflage for those long sits, back up against a white oak tree, hearing those hens and gobblers hold up 200 yards away as I'm just waiting for them to come in. The second thing you gotta know is you have to be prepared for anything. Whether it's a tom sneaking up behind you or a rainstorm coming at you out of nowhere, Canis has you covered. From the Nunavut rain jacket to the chamois fleece hoodie, the Alpine pant with built-in knee pads. Make sure you have Canis on you for this upcoming turkey season. Use our discount code OZARK for 15% off website or in-store, and good luck this turkey season. And that that's really my go-to. The other, the third line that if you're really serious, uh, fishing post-flood is the way to catch your big ones. Um, yeah, so... 
But for instance, when you say post flood, you maybe you're about to say this. Yeah. Sorry. Yep. No. Okay. Go ahead. Great question. That's what I want to expand on because I'm not encouraging people to go out the day after yeah, a flood. Don't go fishing. <laughs> the flood. No. Yeah, no. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 If it's chocolate milk, stay home. Yeah. Don't be it's stupid. It. It's called death water. Yes. Exactly. For one, those smallmouth, these smallmouth that are used to seeing 12 foot visibility, they don't eat worth a crap in muddy water anyways. Mm. Stay home. Don't make us get our search and rescue boats out and come save your butt. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about if it, so I'm going to use CFS for the Keynes River. So this is not an end-all be-all for all of the Ozarks. This is specifically to the Keynes. You can learn this. Uh, it's called a river app. It's a free app to download. It's yeah. got all of the rivers in the Ozarks and then some. Um, it'll show you on that app what your CFS is. Today, we're at 300, well, at 5 o'clock this morning when I checked, we were at 383 CFS. Okay. We um, dropped a little bit. Probably, yeah. Uh, it, it'll drop about... Uh, 150 CFS every 24 hours on this particular river. Now, there's some rivers that are different, but that's where you got to start to learn. So, like, when this river floods, um, I won't get on it until we're, like, 1,200 CFS is pushing it. 1,000 is pretty good. 800 is, like, 600 to 800 is freaking money. And that's what you're calling post-flood. That's what I'm calling post-flood. big guys. Yeah. Okay. So, the reason for that... You're going to see your watercolor be kind of an off green. It, it almost looks like Florida Key water. Like, it's kind of that off greeny, but still clear. Like, yeah. there's good visibility, but they aren't seeing the boat. Today, those fish are going to see the boat from 40 feet away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we were just talking about visibility out to the middle from here. Yeah, Sitting exactly. down. Yeah. They're definitely going to see Yeah. It. So, um, that post-flood is when you're going to get your big ones. And that's when you're going to need a bigger, kind of the line that you're talking about, because you've got to get down, and you got to get down fast. It's a lot of work. This is not something for the faint of heart. This is not even, oh, I've been fly fishing for a year. Mm. Like, you better condition that that shoulder, because it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and you, ever, you even better condition your offset elbow yeah. for the stripping that's going to happen. Yes, 100%. <laughs> like you'll get tired stripping that fly back. Yes. Which yeah, is, sure. Yeah. Um, you feel like a loser because you can't <laughs> just tired after your stripping arm. But that's uh, all cool. And, and we're using big flies too. Like uh, one of the flies that I'll, I'll name on a podcast is a double deceiver. Mm. Um, so on this particular river, there, it's a shad river. Uh, it flows into Taylor Rock Lake, which is a shad lake. So everything around... Every all the predator fish revolve around shad. Yeah. Um, so you're saying don't throw your crawdad. Go do that on Crooked Creek. Yeah. Don't, don't do, do that, that on Crooked. Don't do that here. Well, uh, you it, and let me clarify. You can here for yeah. sure, but you're going to be snagged up a bunch. There's yeah, there's yeah. just better. Crooked's a very small narrow stream. Sure. It's great for wading crawdad. It's phenomenal for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here. It, it's just not it's not the technique that's best for this river. Yeah. Love it. I well and that's what we've talked about this before is like knowing your river. Yes. Like you have to kind of dial it in and, and spend the time out there to know like what works best in what situations hundred percent what water. Yep. Um and I'm gonna tell you right now, if you're in a boat, I would recommend throwing a streamer. Period. Okay. Because if you're throwing a crawdad from a boat, you're gonna back row a lot. Your guide or your buddy who's rowing is gonna hate you. Yeah, it's a like, long day. It's it is a long day. <laughs> because if you're fishing a crawdad, right, you have to be dragging the bottom. Yeah. Well, if you're in a boat and the boat's moving faster than your fly, 
you're gonna like that's just the nature of it. You're gonna snatch. Yeah, it's a recipe for those rock bass. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Um, so double deceivers in that post flood. Uh, I just let me back up a little bit. The line that I'm using for that, it's the Rio Predator. Uh, it's their seven to five. So it's seven inch per second to five inch per second. Okay. To floating. Got it. And so it's, that's not a full sink, right? That's correct. A, okay. Yeah. On the the, uh, the first 20 feet, yeah. that head is yeah. what they call it. The mm-hmm. first 20 feet is what's going to sink. Okay. And then you're floating. Got it. Um, I don't ever, I'm not going to say never, 99% of always, <laughs> I'm not going to throw a full sink yeah, for small sure. mouth. Um, I, let me put it this. I own two full sink lines. I own like 23 fly rods. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many spools and reels I have, but it's a lot. Okay. I own two full sink. Got it. I use them for striper and that's it. Yeah. Um, or musty, but we're in the Ozarks. There's only two lakes that have musty and we don't get to chase them very much. Got it. So this is where we got to expand a little bit. Smallmouth is one of the, there's so many variables here that we got to really expand to answer these questions properly. So first thing we've got to talk about is time of year. What time of year are we fishing? Yeah. I'm going to narrow this down a little bit just for the sake of time on a, on a podcast. Um, I'm talking, and I think the average angler is going to be post-spawn to early fall. Okay. So we're talking middle of May-ish through like September, October, right? Yeah. So yeah. we're kind of talking our summer months. It's the warm months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you can fly fish for them year-round. Um, I start chasing them in the end of February, like really hardcore chasing them, and I'll run all the way through December. Okay. Um, so you can, but for the sake of this podcast, for the sake of this conversation, let's talk post-spawn through fall. Okay. So post-spawn, when they're done spawning, they're going to start to move to, uh, you're looking for structure in the middle of the river. They're not as related to the bank. The reason for that is because it's typically shallower. And now there's a couple of exceptions to that, and we'll we'll get there. Um, blue herons are smallmouth's number one enemy. And when that you know, the teens is covered in aquatic grass that's growing that first four foot of the, the river, uh, is covered in aquatic grass. Those blue heron can hide in that aquatic grass. So any of those fish that are in there yeah. are blue heron bait. Got mm. it. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Now, that being said, early morning, late evening, they will get in there. And your biddings, and I'm talking like if I'm going out to chase a biddin in the summertime, I'm going to fish that grass line all day long. Okay. Because your sunfish and your your minnows will get in that grass to hide. So your biddings will get in there. I'm talking like 16 plus. Something that a blue heron is not going to go, I can eat that. Sure. Right. So, uh, but stereotypically, we're talking big chunk rock, middle of the river. Okay. Um, stripping those streamers on a slow sink line, that type three, uh, just like we did. Literally, that, that spot that we rolled up on that you talked about at the beginning of the podcast, that is a stereotypical smallmouth as you can get for the Ozarks. Yeah. Big chunk rock, a little bit of gravel in there around it, uh, middle of the river where the current is bringing that food over top of it, and that's where those fish are going to be. Ideally, I want water, I'm going to say, to the top of those rocks, two and a half to three feet. So, you know, around that waist deep-ish. Yeah. So Somewhere in there. 
Um, you can get deeper, and you'll find big fish in that deeper water, but it gets pretty tough to to actually fish to because it takes so long for your fly to get down. Right. Um, so that's your first spot that you're looking. Your second spot, we talked a little bit about incubator riffles. Yeah, that was a new term for me. Yeah, so that's kind of a guide term. Um, I don't, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly common term, but basically what that means, when you're thinking about the, the river and you get those areas where it nets down, it's still fairly deep, but it's fast water. And it's just, the, the top of that surface is just, it's a riffle. Yeah. Right? right. But it's a long run. Typically they're at like a tail out, what a lot of people call a tail out. It's a, it's a longer version of a tail out. Okay. Is that incubator riffle. And I, I want knee deep water at a minimum knee-deep to waist-deep water, and I want some chunk rock in there. Or, like, some slab rock that's got some ledges in there. You know, something that gives them a spot to hide behind. The reason we call them incubator riffles, 7 to 10-inch, maybe 11-inch smallmouth will hang there all summer long. It's higher oxygen content in the water, dissolved oxygen. It's cooler because it's faster moving, and it is more food rolling through there. So they don't have to get in there in that grass and compete with a big fish. They got it all themselves. Because those big fish are screw that. I don't, I'm not worried about a blue heron. I'm going to go sit over here with these bluegill. When I get hungry, I'm going to eat one of them. Yeah. Those little fish, they can't eat a bluegill. They'll try, but they're not going to be able to actually eat that bluegill. So they're going to hang out in those riffles. So I've had many, many, many trips where, um, you fish those deep lawn holes and the water's so stinking clear, you'll see that 18 plus smallmouth come out. It's just that torpedo coming out behind yeah, your fly. And you're cool. like, oh, here, oh, here it comes, here it comes. And then they you see the boat. Panic. Yeah, exactly. And then you they see the boat and they just stop. Yeah. And it's like, ah, oh, he's not gonna eat. Busted, yeah. And so that's when those incubator riffles will save your butt. You can get in a good lawn one. Man, the teens got some of these incubator riffles that are 60, 70, 80 yards long. You can catch 10 fish out of them. And so these are, Dang. you know, these aren't big ones. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking 12 inches and, and less. Yeah. Just getting on some fish. Yes. But still a fish worth catching. Still a fish. And, and there's heavy current. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a nine inch smallmouth and heavy current on a nine foot five it's weight. It's going to be fun. Fun to catch. It's going gonna, it's gonna to eat your lunch, dude. Oh, yeah. And you're going to have a ball doing it. And it's going to give you that really good practice that a intermediate level fisherman probably needs on setting the hook fighting these fish keeping good tension on it how do i net this fish on my own if i am on my own if i've got a buddy how do i get that fish to a spot where that buddy can net the fish for me because not everybody's a guide right like not everybody does that 200 days a year 300 days a year like most people don't right so getting in those incubator riffles and that's where i'll start kids out too man if i've got a kid in the boat i'm like big fish water i ignore it and i jump from riffle to riffle to riffle, get out of the boat, get that kid in the water in ankle-deep water, fishing to those fish, yeah. and they will have a ball. Yeah. Uh, and we'll probably do some – and that that really starts from June. You need water temperatures in the high 70s for that to start. Okay. So typically speaking, you're talking late, late May, first part of June. Uh, and that will run all the way through the end of September. Um, and, and that right there can be a day maker. Um. Technique-wise, I want, if I'm waiting, well, really, even if I'm in a boat. Yeah, either way. So, either way, I want 
my fly line to go at a 45-degree angle downstream. Okay. If I'm waiting, I'm going to swing it a little bit more, so I'll strip it and just kind of let that current swing it down under me. Yeah. Um, if I'm in a boat, I'm just going to strip back, right, because the boat's moving with the fly. Um, now, when you get into swinging, that's a technique that can be as basic or as advanced as you want it to be. So you can keep your line tight, and you can just twitch your rod the whole time, and it'll just swing all the way across. Uh, you can let line out as you go and cover more water. You can strip it all. The, there's so many things you can do. Right. And that's something that I think the average individual can get out and play with and learn on their own. Like that's, yeah. it's not, it's not something that you need somebody to teach you how to do in order to have success doing it your first time out. Like just go play with it, have yeah. fun with it. That's like this, this last week I was out just fishing on a little Creek by my house and that I mean that was what I was doing was just throwing and I was experimenting with throwing downstream further straight across a little bit upstream letting it get deeper yep swinging around kind of letting that fly turn and have that mm-hmm. little wiggle yeah. right oh at the yeah end. yep and just experimenting with that and playing with it that was when I started realizing like oh that day specifically they wanted they were wanting something a little bit to have that wiggle so I was yes. throwing it further upstream letting it drift down kick out and tail yep. before I start. I didn't really even touch it or wiggle it. Yeah, It was sure. something like that. But to your point, it's so easy to go out there and do that. Yeah, and 100%. Play with it. Yep, yep. Um, so that's kind of the... When I'm stripping it, I'm typically... I'm not doing these big... Like, this isn't salt water. This is, like, the YouTube videos will get you jacked up, man. You don't need this big three-foot full-arm extension strip. Like, I'll do everything I need to do with my wrist. Yeah. Uh, and it helps with fatigue, too, because as we talked about a second ago, like, you'll get worn out mm-hmm. stripping those streamers all day. So I'll just do it with my wrist. You can do a three- to six-inch strip just with your wrist. Uh, the big key for smallmouth, you want an upstream attitude, so you want that fly trying to face an upstream the whole time. And then you want pauses. When that fly pauses, I want it to have action. So what that means is I don't want my fly moving forward towards me, but I still want it to have action. So that's where craft fur, marabou, uh, if it's articulated, meaning two hooks, mm-hmm. when I pause that thing, when I strip it and pause it, I want it to kick where that tail almost comes around and touches the nose of it. Mm, okay. That's what triggers those bites. Yeah. So craft fur, or craft fur is a phenomenal material for those streamers because it'll just sit there and undulate and move and you're not moving it towards you, but your fly is never still. Mm. Um, Marabou, same thing. It'll sit there and undulate the whole time. Yep. So, and honestly, we... That's where something like a, a deer-haired pattern... Yes. Yep. Is that... Does that... Does it work or does it hinder you? Like, is that too stiff if you're going to fish like a... Man, I'm blanking on the name. The dungeon. Di- uh, the, the dungeon, or they got the, the big lead eyes. They kind of flip over. The clouser? Yeah, the clouser. Yeah, is that, is that something so, like a clouser may be, it may be too stiff? Yeah. Um, so you really want some of that, yep. some of that marabou or some of that other type, yeah, of, for type sure. of stuff? Okay. So I'm going to ruffle some feathers here, and that's okay. A clouser is a saltwater fly. That's where it was designed for. It was designed for fishing the flats. You will catch smallmouth on it. You'll catch walleye on For it. sure. But it's not, I mean, you guys have looked through my fly boxes. I don't have a single, I don't own a clouser. I don't know. I mean, I could figure out how to tie one. I don't know that I've ever tied one. They're easy to tie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've been tying long enough. I'm sure I can. I'm sure you can. But, you would be fine. <laughs> yeah, but I've literally never tied one. Okay, yeah. 
smallmouth in the summertime, when they're aggressive in the summertime, they feed up. They're looking up. They're feeding up. There are some exceptions to that, like Crooked Creek. And I, I don't want to keep name dropping that creek and send too much pressure to it, but it's you get those small streams like that or the stream that you're by your house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can get some of those crawl patterns. There there's a, a smaller ecosystem. And so, so they're the, keyed in on it more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You do well, it won't sustain as much bait fish. Right. Which yes. makes sense. Hundred percent. Yep. Um, you did on a river like this. I mean, we've seen you got twelve inch gizzard set, gizzard shad. Yeah, yeah. In the I I mis ID'd them earlier. <laughs> I won't say what I. Made. I wasn't gonna say that, but yes. Uh, but your mis ID was justified. Like it made sense. Thanks, man. You're making me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's there's enough bait fish in this river. There's you got like eight different species of shiners several different of minnows, a bunch of darters in here. Mm -hmm. It's a huge ecosystem. So I want swim flies, meaning unweighted streamers. With deer hair, double deceivers tied with deer hair. And that's one of my go-to. Yeah, you've been fishing. I've been fishing. Yeah, you've been fishing a double deceiver all day. Um, And you've you've moved several fish. You've had a couple of three opportunities on them. Yeah. Um, So deer hair is, is a phenomenal... Uh, material to use, but I typically mix it. So, like, my double deceivers that I personally tie, I will actually, rather than, like, my body filler on it will be marabou. Mm-hmm. So, that way, you've got some undertones of movement. Yeah. And it's just this real subtle undertone, and I also like it because there's so many more colors of marabou that I can really get, you know, I can match the hatch, as you will, right. a lot closer with using an undertone of marabou than you can just straight deer hair. Yeah. So, uh, I'm still getting my movement, but I get the stiffness and the water movement of deer hair. Uh, honestly, we could have a whole other podcast just on streamer theory. So, <laughs> if, if we need to really, like, I can go on for days when it comes to streamer theory, how to tie them, what materials to use, when to use what. That's something that um, I'm very passionate about. Yeah. And, and you can get as lost in the sauce on streamers as you can on the fly lines. So um, I'll talk as much as I want, as you guys want me to, but I don't want to end up with a three-hour podcast <laughs> if that's not what we're shooting yeah, for. Yeah, we got to keep fishing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have a lot of water to cover still. Yes, we do. So maybe we do, yeah, we, uh, what do you call it, an abridged version. I don't know what that means, but sure. A shorter version. Keep it short oh, and yeah. simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect. Um, so as far as flies, Joe, though, um, double deceiver, um, single deceiver, which is just a smaller version, um, I really like a craft fur minnow. Mm-hmm. Um, just super basic. It's easy for anybody to tie. They're cheap to tie. They're fast to tie. So if you lose a dozen of them in the trees in a day, it, you're not upset. Yeah. Double deceivers take me a minute to tie. So I'd like... I don't want to lose a dozen of them, right? Anything that's articulated, it's just going to take a little bit more yeah, time. Yeah, yep. Um, the other one that I like a lot is a Murdich minnow. And okay. that's kind of one of those, uh, it's a sneak fly. Like, not a lot of guys talked about that. I'm I'm going to catch flat from, I know at least two guys for saying that on <laughs> this. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's okay. Like, it's, I think we're at a point in the industry where social media is kind of catching, like it's it's coming out, right? Like yeah. people are figuring out, oh hey, this this is a game changer fly. Like we need to throw it. 
Um, but really, I think that the key when I'm looking for a fly, the the one thing I'll say on theory, what I'm looking for is something that looks like a dying minnow. Mm, yeah. Um, so anything that twitches, shudders, shapes, just that real erratic movement, that's really what we're looking for. Okay. Um, and there's, gosh, you, there's a lot of flies out there that do that. Um, one piece of advice that I'll give just the average Joe that maybe doesn't know what to pitch, look in the trout world of streamers. There's a lot more developers in the trout world. And a lot of those patterns, and I won't name them, but a lot of those streamer patterns in the trout world are getting thrown for smallmouth, and they are uber successful. Mm. So if you're not sure, or maybe you're new to tying, or you're an experienced tire, but you're wanting to kind of expand on what you normally tie, man, I started looking at some of those big streamers that you're using in the trout world. There's some sneaky streamers in that industry that people don't think. I I gave Connor one. Yeah, he's he's uh, that's a true blue trout fly, man. Yeah, I if we asked him, I bet he's trout fish on it if he threw it. Yeah, probably so. He's over there fishing right now. Is he? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if he's got anything. Hopefully. Um, so that's kind of I, I think we've covered rods, reels, lines. Um, couple of streamers kind of the the theory behind what we're looking for yeah anything yeah. on you talked about time of season but just in general like something something at least in the ozarks it's always important for us to talk about conservation that's a big thing that yeah we've, we've learned and as as we've gone out and we've met a lot more people we have to take care of what we have right yes. like we have to be stewards of the resource and so on that note like smallmouth. Yeah. It is a symbol of the Ozarks. Absolutely. H how important is that to you, and, and what do you try to tell people? So, dude, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Uh, when you say they're the symbol of the Ozarks, you're 100% right. Uh, man, they live a hard scrabble life here in the Ozarks. Uh, we have a good ecosystem for them, but it's nothing like what they got. I mean, you go to the Great Lakes, they got gobies everywhere. Yeah. Like, them things are football-shaped because <laughs> all they're doing is eating gobies. Yeah. These things are eating crawdads. They're eating minnows. Most of these minnows are stone rollers. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a stone roller. They got freaking bones on their head, man. <laughs> like these poor smallmouth are eating a fish. Like their main food source has freaking pokey bones on the top of their head. They're freaky looking. They're yeah, like, they are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, on these yeah. Fish. like there is not a single easy meal in this river or any Ozark or shad's the closest thing these poor fish have to an easy meal. Mm. And the shad that are up the river are seven, eight inches long it, on the small end. Yeah. Um, so they have a hard life. Um, and, you know, if you look at the Ozarks pre-2000, before Walmart, Tyson, J.B. Hunt, all that, that's what the Ozarks was. Mm -hmm. um, so for a lot of us locals, they really do symbolize what we grew up living the Ozark life. Yeah. Um, from a conservation standpoint, understand how old these fish are. Yeah. They grow so incredibly slow. That 15 and a half inch fish that you caught earlier, he's in the 12 to 13 year old range, somewhere in that range. That's just insane to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like your your eight ten inch fish, they're in the three to four year old range. Your twelve inch fish, they're seven to eight, maybe nine. 
So somewhere in that range. Of course, each mm-hmm. ecosystem's a little bit different, but yeah. generally speaking. Um, so on this particular river, you're allowed to harvest two smallmouth over 14 inches. Okay. So if we kind of think about that from an aggregate growth standpoint, let's say a 14-inch fish on this river, let's say he's in that. Let's For the sake of math, let's say he's 10. Okay. Right, which I think that's a little on the low side, but let's say he's 10. So if you keep your two fish that you're allowed over 14 inches, you just took 20 years of aggregate growth. Mm-hmm. Let's say you do that twice. You just took more fish than you've been alive. Mm. Like, let that sink in mm-hmm. for just a second. 40 years of growth for those four fish. Yeah. Yeah. And now let's talk about, you know, and in, in I don't want to go crazy deep into this, but this river is a fairly popular river to float on. Yeah, absolutely. And let's say... Let's say there's a hundred smallmouth a year taken out of here, which I think is probably like there's a lot of catch and release efforts, but I still see a lot of people with smallmouth on stringers. Yeah, you think it's a hundred in a year? I think that's pretty on this entire river, not this stretch, but this entire river from Eureka Springs to the lake. I would have thought it'd be like way more than that. No, I think it's probably probably right around. You think 100. that many people are releasing yeah, what I they do. catch? Yep. Well, that's good. It's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, let's say they're all 14 inch fish. There's a hundred fish in a year at 10 years old. That's, that's a lot of damage that we've done. Yeah. It's, it's going to take so much time to replace that number of fish. And one of the things that I don't think gets talked about a lot that I I just want to break down for the average person to understand these rivers that attach to a lake. So tributary of, of the lake, these river fish, they don't stay up here all year. They migrate back to the lake in the wintertime. Mm. So, you know, that's why you see so many guys talk about, well, don't fish to spawning fish. We, the tournament guys do it. Bassmaster does it. Mm-hmm. Why can't we? Mm-hmm. Well, here's what you need to understand. On the lake, those fish rejuvenate. They repopulate in those areas. I know for a fact. I've got picture proof. We caught the same three-and-a-half-pound largemouth four times last year. Really? Off this river, different stretch, the one below the stretch we're on today, four times in one summer. And you're a, you you feel like you're able to tell that just by markings and... Dude, it was in the same brush pile all summer. Okay. It lived in the same brush pile. Yeah. By fish pictures, really detailed pictures. Yeah. I would bet you my salary for the next year. Wow. Like, I am that positive. Okay. It's the same fish. I know for a fact... There's three smallmouth that I've caught this year that are the same fish. Three separate ones. One of them's got this real weird, it's maybe 13 inches. It's got this real weird, like, humpback deal on it. Like, he, super definitive fish, right? Yeah. Like, know for a fact it's him. Yeah. Um, we've caught him three times. Within 40 yards of where we've caught him every time. So, when we're talking about river fish, they don't repopulate. The fish that move up here, that migrate up into the river... In April and May, they're here for the year. Mm-hmm. We don't get another push. So if you start to take those fish out, you can quite literally fish that stretch out because it just doesn't repopulate. Yeah, you won't catch that fish again. Right. Or that area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's enough, you know, social media is a, is a wonderful thing, 
But what it's done is it's educated everybody on how to fish well. Mm -hmm. So our average fisherman is substantially better than they were 15 years ago. Hmm. That's interesting. Substantially better. And I've even seen a difference just in the last 10 years over my guiding career. My average client is probably 40% better than they were 10 years ago. And I, I honestly contribute that to social media. Yeah. Because there's so much information and such it's so easy to get that information. Yeah. I mean, the resources are there. It's just the people now, they have access to them. Yeah. And they didn't have to go spend as much time on the water with right. the guides, you know, booking trips and stuff like that. They can yep. get some of that knowledge through podcasts, yes. YouTube videos, stuff like that. And I think with COVID, it really brought around, you know, there's two years of people scared to do anything. And, and I'm not trying to get political with COVID, but like everybody was watching YouTube. Mm -hmm. Everybody was listening to podcasts. Yeah. It, like there's so much more of that information consumed that I think our average fisherman is substantially better. So with that, I think we need to increase our awareness of conservation mm -hmm. because we're catching more fish. Right. Um, you know, safe handling techniques. And I'm not one of these guys. Like, listen, trout, they're a different story. you got to be there. You can look at a trout wrong and they'll die. <laughs> like, that's just the truth of it. Yeah, that's true. Smallmouth are not that way. Um, but... You still have to be careful. One of the conversations that I have with Game and Fish, and I'm actually super excited to be a part of the study with them, we're going to electroshock this river. Mm -hmm. And one of the goals in that is to learn about delayed mortality. So what that means, a perfect example, I was on this river two days ago. Uh, we caught a fish, caught a smallmouth, um, a little deep, not like, not daintily, nowhere around his gills. Um, he wasn't bleeding when we let him go. Um, he swam away super strong. At the moment of release, I was like, that fish is good, man. Like, no doubt in my mind, he's going to live a long and healthy life. Yeah. An hour later, he floats past us. Hmm. I was like, what the heck? So I got to thinking about it, and I think what got him, because he kind of ate it a little bit deeper, just the amount of time that we, in the way that we had to hold him to try to get that fly out of his mouth. Yeah. We had delayed mortality. Hmm. And, dude, I'm talking, I'm on the water 280, 300 days a year. And I, like, I feel pretty confident, or I did feel pretty confident in my ability to judge, like, yeah. if that fish is going to live or not. Right. And I would, if, if you had asked me before that happened, if that fish was going to live, 100%. Right. No doubt in my mind. Here he comes floating in. Same, fi same fish. You picked him up. You saw kind yeah. of markings. Yep. And same fish, dude. Mm -hmm. Same length. Same, like, same fish. Um... And we're not but 300 yards downstream where it happened. Yeah. Like I, I unfortunately feel very confident that that was the same fish, and it was delayed mortality. Right. Um, so, you know, some of those basic safe handling techniques, keep them in the water. Mm -hmm. uh, when you take your pictures, get it done fast, get them back. Mm -hmm. If if you, you know, with us today, we've got some professional photographers with us. We're, we're trying to, to get some stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you notice, we're keeping these fish in the net, in mm -hmm. the water. Right. We take them out, get three pictures, put them back in the net. Yeah. Like, it took us quite a little bit to get everything because we were letting that fish chill mm -hmm. in the water, trying to be respectful of him. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that, I see it all the time. These people are pitching them up, holding them up, 
you're holding them by their mouth and holding them like this where, you know, they're, they're parallel. And you can see that mouth is just, there's so much weight on that jaw. Mm. I know for a fact those fish are getting broken jaws because I've caught them with broken jaws. I catch them on this river all the time with a broken jaw. Interesting. And where that comes from, it breaks at the joint. Yeah. And where that comes from is somebody pitching up a 16-inch fish and not supporting their weight by holding their belly. They yeah, just hold them sideways. By, yep. And it'll just snap that jaw. That's interesting. Yeah, that's something that's like, I mean, I didn't know that. I mean, when I pull out a smallmouth and I and I get them in the mouth, that's how mm-hmm. you hold it. I mean, yeah. any picture you see, that's how people yep. are holding them. And so, yeah, that education, I mean, that's yeah. important. So hold them by the mouth 100%, but hold them up and down vertical mm-hmm. rather than horizontal. Mm. Um one of the things that I try to encourage people to learn, and you're going you're gonna to screw up a couple times when you're trying to get your picture. You will because you got to learn how to do the hold. But there's a nerve, and I'm not sciencey enough to name the nerve. I can't pronounce it. But there's a nerve in their belly. If you put your fingertips in that belly, those fish, it's just like a human being tased, and they just freeze completely stiff. Hmm. You can hold that. If it's got enough body weight, to push that nerve, I can hold that fish like this all day long, and he will not flop and all it, day long. And it doesn't hurt them? doesn't hurt them. Um, I, I, I don't know how to explain it other than it's just a nerve that yeah. you're pushing on, and it just freezes them. Mm-hmm. You'll see their tail curl around a little bit. Makes for a super cool picture. It's very safe for the fish. Um, so that's one of those. It, it's kind of a newer style of, of doing it. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with holding a smallmouth by the mouth. Mm. Not one iota of something wrong with it. Just don't hold him horizontal. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah support his belly if he's going horizontal or yes. straight up and down. Yeah, yeah exactly. Don't, let, put, don't put his whole body weight on yeah. just right. the jaw. Yep. yep. Can you imagine if you were held like that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. Yeah, no, um, and no shade on fish fish pictures either. We do it. Yeah, well, yeah. you want to get a picture yeah. of it. But um, keep them in the water. Yep. Up real quick, quick photo, yep. released. Um, my kind of rule of thumb when I'm dealing with photographers is when that water stops dripping off that fish, I need to put him back in the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I tell kids all the time when I'm teaching a kid how to do it, I tell them to hold their breath mm. and that's a little unrealistic, but from a teaching perspective, tell little Johnny who's 12, you know, Hey, you can get all the pictures you want. I love it. This is awesome. This is a great experience for you. Yeah. But when you hold that fish out of the water, he can't breathe. He needs the dissolved oxygen in that water. So when you pick him up, as soon as he comes out of the water, I want you to <gasps> and hold your breath while that fish is out of the water. That's and, a good way to do and that. And when you start getting out of breath, give him a, you know, let him breathe. Yeah. And I like that. As adults, we can kind of use some judgment. Right. Sure. But for a little kid, it's a, and it makes it even more fun because it's one more, th- you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's something that they can do and think about. <laughs> yes. And so it really helps from a very young age um, to ingrain in them. Hey, I'm not keeping this fish out of the water for three minutes to get the perfect picture of him. Right. I'm doing 15, maybe, like, if I'm holding the fish out of the water for 20 seconds, that's a long time. Yeah. In my boat. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I'll ask so, you I'll ask you one last thing just cuz I'm, sure. I'm curious. And then we'll get back to the water. We yep. got we've got some we tacos, got some tacos. To make. <laughs> Yeah, Hawaiian pork tacos, yeah, baby. Ready to get back to fishing. We got a good day ahead of us. I'll ask you one thing. Yep. The delayed mortality thing. Yeah. What what kind of so you said you're going to do some electro fishing. What yep. are you how are you guys going to like conduct that study? I'm just curious at this point cuz I'm not sure how you would even go about doing that. I, I 
I don't have all the answers to that, to be okay. really honest with That's you. That's fine. So, um, I think I said on the podcast last time, I was super blessed and got to help with the electroshocking for the walleye. Mm-hmm. Um, they invited me to come back on this study because um, biologists are awesome, great dudes, very educated, but there's a difference between book knowledge and somebody who's on the water 300 days a year. Yeah, absolutely. And so they offered their, you know, hey, this is what we're going to do. Here's what we're trying to study. Are you interested in helping us? Because we think you can add some value to this. Gotcha. 100% I would love to. Yeah. But as far as how that study is actually conducted, I'm not for sure on the trout. Um, And and this is a study that they've done. Again, I don't know exactly how. I think, for one, we got to acknowledge, and the biologists are going to stick their tongue out at me for this, there's no exact number, right? Like, to do that study... And be 100% accurate, you'd have to catch every fish in the river. And yeah. But uh, on the trout, when your water temperature gets above 72, I think it is, it's like 85% delayed mortality. Mm. Yeah, it's huge. That's high. It's insane. Uh, anything above 60, 63 or 64, I think it is you start to see an increase in delayed mortality. Interesting. And that's a fish that's handled properly. The slime's not taken off of them. You keep them wet. Your hands are wet. They're, you know, in the water up. Take your picture back in the water. Let them go. Mm-hmm. You're talking a huge delayed mortality. You just can't de-stress. Right. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, okay. that, I'll be curious to hear how, uh, yeah. how they conduct that. That'll be cool to see. Is that with John Stein and because we've had John on the on the podcast before and he's the fisheries biologist for the north of Arkansas region. I'm sure he'll be. I don't know. Okay. Um, the guys. So I was talking to. Oh gosh, I don't. I don't remember now. I'm horrible names to start uh, with. You don't have to, man. Uh, but it's the guys out of the hatchery in Centerton. Okay. They they pair up with the biology, so it's two different departments, but I think they've got the same office. Got it. So they share an office. And so I was able to meet everybody involved. And so they were the ones who invited me. Cool. Uh, but I'm excited to see how it does. Yeah, that'll be cool. I'll, we'll we'll have to reach back out and, and hear from yeah. you a little bit about that. Yep, for sure. All right, man. Tacos. Tacos. What do we have ahead of us? Let's let the listeners know what's, yeah, what's so, ahead of us from here. Uh, we've got about three miles of money water i mean just like the best water you could ask for i love it that's what we like to hear yep so i i will be very surprised if somebody doesn't catch a 17 18 inch fish today baby we got a little bit of wind (laughs) picking up breaking up that water surface we got some big old clouds moving in we got the right temperatures i think somebody's gonna catch a big one today awesome love it awesome well clayton thanks for um one taking us out here and two 100%. letting us do a podcast with you on the water. It's uh it's cool. It's an awesome venue. You guys can see it on our YouTube. We've got the water in the background, some of the rafts behind us. It's just a it's a cool spot. If you guys like this episode, make sure you let us know. Share it with a buddy and uh, leave us a five star written review on Apple. Uh, leave us a five star written review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you on the next one. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. For guest recommendations, episode ideas, and general questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or email us at theozarkpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, we love making this show and being able to offer this podcast to y'all for free. But if you're listening and you want to support the Ozark Podcast to allow us to travel even further and meet more interesting people, 
head over to our Patreon and sign up to join our most loyal listeners. Let me tell you, these folks are 100% certified Ozarkins. And, of course, we can't forget to thank our good buddy, J.D. Clayton, for providing the amazing music for today's episode. Check out his website to see where he's touring next at jdclaytonofficial.com. Now, sit back and enjoy his song, American Millionaire. I'm on the road. But you know I'll be an American millionaire.